That is the 2023 mix uh, of uh, Love Me Do. Why don't you know right here on our stage, the Beatles, four mop tops from Liverpool. Um, that's ancillary to what we're going to talk about at the beginning of the show today, which is now and then a brand new, sort of, brand new to us anyway, brand new uh, release of a Beatles song, 50 years you know, down the road. Um, and a little bit later in the show, we will talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Martin Scorsese's adaptation of David Grand's book, uh, and the Papulian through line today would be there. There is a country for old men. It turns out the Coen brothers were wrong. Um, everybody <laughs> we're talking. All four Beatles had were they all still alive? Would be in their eighties. Martin Scorsese is uh, and Robert De Niro are also both just in their 80s. Um, so, <laughs> so if you were expecting youth to be a factor here, maybe not so much. Uh, but we do have a wonderful panel, uh, and I think panel kind of boomerish as well. Uh, nothing wrong with that, though. We could be as boomerish as we want here. So to begin, we are going to talk about Now and Then uh, with Jim Chapdelaine, an Emmy-winning musician, patient advocate for people with rare cancers, and much more besides all of that. Uh, and so um, maybe before I get you going on this, Jim, let's hear a little bit of Now and Then. The quick story, the quick backstory I'll tell, we'll have to go into it in more detail, uh, but this started out uh, as really one of the last songs John Lennon was kind of messing around with. The only existing version of it was him at a piano. It wasn't a great recording. Uh, attempts were made in the mid-90s to do something with it. Um, it. It was just technically very difficult or aesthetically displeasing with the technology they had available. And, and then some other things happened, uh, and they were able to recreate this and retrieve a George Harrison guitar solo from the mid-'90s uh, and, and then mix in new stuff with uh, Ringo playing drums and Paul playing basically every other instrument under the sun and doing some string arrangements with George Martin's son. And, you know, anyway, let's play a little bit of A1, Cat. And if I make it through 
right. Already I may have made a mistake. I'm being told by Pants that, that isn't, there isn't a George Harrison slide guitar solo. I thought I read it in the first New York Times piece about this, that, that, um, that they'd actually been able to salvage that. All right. So um, I'm very prepared to be wrong about everything today. So uh, we, before I bring Jim in, I, we should also say uh, there's also a really interesting uh, uh, little short documentary. I think it's about 18 minutes long, maybe, uh, about the making of this. And both the official video of this and, and uh, the the Beatles now and then the last Beatles song, which is the short film, are available on the YouTube's. So Jim Chapdelaine, I mean, I guess we should start with, I mean, however we feel about the song or the project or anything, and we'll get into that. There is just, I think, as you said, it's the freaking Beatles who are suddenly yeah. singing anew in 2023. Just on the basis of that, there's an argument for getting pretty excited. Sure. Yeah. It's, and it sounds a little like the mature Beatles, like adult Beatles, um, to me anyways, uh, except for John Lennon's voice, which sounds very youthful. Right. And Um, and yeah, it does. I mean, the song itself is, I think to your point, kind of autumnal. There's a way in which it is a song looking back and also looking towards the future and what one will think about. It it was, you know, it, it isn't, it's not good day sunshine. Let's just put it that way. But, but and nor is it yesterday. No, um, it's not quite at that. I mean, I guess he's sitting down at the piano and just sort of knocking out a demo, um, and they found it and made this thing out of it. I I like the way it came out. There's, um, it's clear that Jeff Lynn is involved mm-hmm. because he has giant fingerprints when he is uh, involved. And he's usually very effective. Um, we say Jeff, and, Jeff, and Lynn, it, Jeff Lynn, the front man for ELO. Right. But he's also the producer for Tom Petty and all sorts of people. And whenever he is present, he makes his presence sonically known. So there's that. And you, you can hear that kind of bubbling out of the scenes of this. But I, I guess the amazing thing to me is I, I heard the uh, the demo they on the little movie. They play the demo for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could hear that the piano is louder than the voice. So uh, we use a lot of AI in the, in the studio these days to find bad frequencies or to enhance something. Um, but here it was used to extract primarily John's voice and you hear it alone. It's, it's pretty astonishing what they did, whether they tuned it or they clearly did. They EQ'd it because it sounds sort of perfect. Um, and they did not use the John Lennon doubler on it. Right. Uh, so which we, surprised me. We just say a little bit more about this. So, yeah, part of the maybe the biggest impediment was that this demo didn't sound very good the way demos tend not to. Uh, I think George might have said it was rubbish or sounded like rubbish. I mean, not, not the yeah. song, but the, the just the quality of it. The piano was in the way of the voice. Uh, and there didn't seem to be any way of separating that in the mid 90s the first time they looked at it. The oddly enough, apparently they discovered this technology partly as a result of Peter Jackson's Get Back, the, the mammoth, mammoth, exactly. mammoth thing. And so yeah. you probably understand this technology way better than I or most of the listeners ever will. But maybe just could you just sort of hint at the impl- implications for it? Is this something where you say you already use AI in the studio, but is this going to be a kind of a game changer in some other way? I don't know. You know, this technology isn't quite available to purchase yet. It's proprietary, but we have facilities of it where we can extract things. Uh, 
and and make them and work on just those things and then reinsert them into the mix. Uh, it is going to be more. I mean, the greater implications of this, of course, are that uh, you teach it how to sing a new John Lennon song. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets a little spooky to me yeah. um, be, because it can s- sort of codify the the uh, the quality of John's voice. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of ways to manipulate that. So I guess it opens the door to musical deep fakes, um, which this is not to be clear. I I wonder if you had the same reaction that I did um, watching the short film. You know, the song, I, 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 I like the song. I think I will probably like the song more as I listen to it more. Same. Exactly. Um, yeah. Watching the short film, I became verklempt. Uh, and and I think if there's another Papulian through line today, it's the it's intimacy. You know, I think the this project is in many ways about the intimacy of a band, a band that had you know storied and legendary triumphs, but also storied and legendary tr- uh, turmoil and and uh, disaffection. Uh, and but there's a way that the intimacy, these four people who experienced something that nobody else could probably really imagine not having experienced it uh, themselves are, are still struggling reaching out through time two of them are dead the other two are reaching back through time to kind of bring them forward into the mix i don't know i got very emotional watching this but i'm also you know getting on in years and i'm vulnerable well hey that's a new thing male <laughs> vulnerability right you're you're paving the way yeah i understand that completely and i think that would be even more um, amplified if you watch the Peter Jackson 30 hour documentary, which I did like one and a half times um, from which this software emerged. And I think that reacquainted us on an intimate level with each Beatle and uh, it changed the narrative on, on what actually happened during that period that they were much more friendly and, uh, and got along much more than we were led to believe by the one hour documentary and let it be. So I was really, so if, if you're still in the shadow of that, and I guess we are, then this resonates even more bec- because it kind of, like you say, it sort of reaches out through time. And, and for those of us, and you and I would know this, uh, who grew up watching them on Ed Sullivan, uh, I'm not sure if you used the deep fake, to get Ed Sullivan to do the intro, but it sounded like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried that AI is going to put me out of work, actually. Right, right. Yeah. But only in the form of Ed Sullivan. Right. Well, I mean, all of my all of my characters, the characters I do in the limo on the way home, you know, I just... Right, uh, of course. <laughs> um, I got a lot of characters, um, some of them are impersonations. AI could probably take them all over. Yeah. Well, this is sort of maybe extending the run we've had with the Beatles since we were 10. Um, I don't know how this would sit with a new Beatle listener. Um, maybe it'll sit fine, you know? Yeah, no, um, I, I agree. I think this is kind of made for a certain generation. Um, and I can tell you, I don't think I'm going to name him because I'm not sure he wants to associate him So for this remark. But one of our somewhat younger nose panelists, when approached about this, said that it just proved that the Beatles, if they'd been able to stay together and survive, would be a great adult contemporary band today, which is kind of how a younger person might see that. I think, you know, you have to be a certain age to grasp. For, for me, the drama is the pathos uh, sure. of just all of this being possible and 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 it's just accompanied by the 
the sadness, the incredible sadness of what got lost, that both John and George meant these very untimely fates. Um, I, I don't think you can unbraid the music and the documentary from those realities. And I think if you're young, those realities just don't loom so large. Yeah, well, they probably don't even exist, uh, except as sort of historical artifacts. Um, because if you're young, you've got the Beatles. It's, it, the Beatles generationally skip, so they're cool, not cool, cool, not cool. Um, uh, my daughter happens to love them because uh, she was vaccinated with a photograph needle that had the Beatles in them. Um, so, I, but but there's other people prior to her that hate the Beatles. So I, I don't understand that, but I don't have to. So so I think uh, the other thing about this is that it does extend our own personal journey with them. And suddenly here we are in the future and we're using robots to uh, to reconstruct the Beatles somehow. Yeah. And uh, first of all, I should say, don't try that at home, vaccinating yourself with a phonograph needle. We do not recommend that. Go to CBS because they have the Beatles thing, the vaccine. Yeah, you, you have to sign up, though. Yeah, you, know, you got to make an appointment in advance. I will just yeah. quickly say, apropos of robots, Pants wants me to say this, I guess, as sort of some kind of full disclosure. I would like to preface what I'm about to say by saying I am, by just universal acclaim, the most egregious technical ignoramus probably anywhere in the radio industry. Uh, like, I don't know how anything works. <laughs> and I don't know any of the kinds of things that you know, Jim. Uh, I just well, if it I, helps, I can't turn off my video. Right. Because I well, can't figure out how to do it. That does make me feel somewhat better. But, um, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I can just about figure out how to put my headphones on. And maybe I can plug them in. Uh, but, but I think I'm the person. Pants will contradict me if I'm wrong. I think I'm the person who flagged down this thing that I read somewhere about how Adobe now has an AI thing that we can use to clean up Zoom audio on pre-tapes and reruns and stuff like that. I think I'm the one who pasted that in our Slack channel. I think my well, my, I, my nurse helped me uh, paste it in the Slack channel. I really couldn't do that by, by myself. But uh, well, but we I now use that. that. We, I, we, we actually use uh, an AI thing now to sure. clean up certain audio. Uh, before that existed, so for the first year and a half, two years of the pandemic, uh, I was doing that for CVS, uh, of all people. Um, their in-house had all those artifacts, and so I was able to use AI to clean that up. You said, and you said C- I do it, and they dumped me. Right, CBS, right, not CVS? CV. Oh, CVS, wow. CVS. Yeah, they're, well, they're a big company, and they, they have are. a lot of in-house mandatory viewing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so any, anyways, it, it's, it is sort of creeping into our lives, but this is a, a nice way that it, it crept in, you, right. you know, it, it, and it's a real performance. So it, it's really important that people understand that. Yeah. Uh, um, also, a little quick uh, reminder that or a little clue, cluing you in. Not only are all of those things available for you to watch the, the short film and you can watch the official video and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but McCartney, first of all, we didn't say this yet, but I mean, Paul McCartney is a very, very remarkable person, even within the context of the Beatles, even in the context of conversations about just geniuses living anywhere in the continuum of popular music. McCartney really does kind of stand out in in certain ways, and he's just so good at so many different things, uh, including playing lots of different instruments, which he did on this. Uh, I think it's, I now think it is he who plays the slide guitar solo. It is him. And I think he might Oh, might have overdubbed some of the piano. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he did I too. Say that I, for sure. I think he did too. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, he definitely plays bass. Yeah, 
Um, but he also, he used this same technology uh, at the Glastonbury Music Festival in 2022 uh, for I've Got a Feeling. There's He's singing it kind of straight up all the way through, and then um, then suddenly John Lennon's up on a screen and he's singing uh, the, the kind of little Whoa. desk camp thing that he has there too, and that's very striking as well. So Jim Chapdelay, you're going to stay here. Two other people are going to metaphorically, zoomifically, sit down next to you and, and, and make up a full nose panel, and we are going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, or poss- possibly the tetracycline mo- uh, of the Flower Moon movie that CVS, I, I think, made, and I think you're now a co-producer. <laughs> that's, that's the sequel. Yeah, that's the sequel. And it's, and it's 12 hours long. Right, and, but less acne. All right, we'll take a little break, and we'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Killers of the Flower Moon is director Martin Scorsese's adaptation of David Grant's book of the same title. Uh, it is many things, including the second longest um, Scorsese film ever, clocking at 2.06 minutes, 206 minutes. The Irishman is three <laughs> three minutes longer. Um, and it stars uh, Leo DiCaprio um, as, well, we'll get into the cast in just a second. Uh, the cast is an interesting conversation to have all by itself. Let me instead introduce the panel. Uh, Jim Chapterling, uh, you already met. Uh, he's still here. Joining us now also is James Hanley, uh, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, and Irene Papoulis. She teaches writing at Trinity College, and this is a huge moment. She's going to be a lot tougher to book from now on. She's the author of the newly published The Essays Only You Can Write, uh, published this week, uh, ordered for Christmas. Uh, And also the Modern Language Association has announced that its spring symposium at the University of Chicago will be dedicated to the Papoulian through line, uh, a critical convention which she invented. So, I mean, it just is, you know, it's a supernova moment basically here. So congratulations on the book, Irene. Thank you so much. And all of us here on the show today will be participating in the symposium this spring in Chicago. So um, so Killers of the Flower Moon is, uh, as I said, an adaptation uh, of um, uh, of David Grant's book. It is uh, set among the Osage tribe uh, in uh, Oklahoma. 
uh, in the aftermath of World War One, uh, and I think I have that right. And uh, it is about crime. I mean, I don't know. There, uh, I, we don't like to spoil anything, but it's impossible. It's, you're going to know this within ten minutes of watching the movie. Uh, it, it is about how this particular group of uh, Native American people became rich from oil. Uh, and then who came after it. Uh, and uh, before we go much further, uh, let's in fact hear Lily Gladstone is Molly Burkhart. She is an Osage woman uh, who is courted by Ernest Burkhart, uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. This would be B1 Cat. He told me he was, he was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. (laughs) (laughs) So, James, uh, you and I both read David Grant's book. I read it when it came out. I don't remember everything about it. I had to sort of check my memory to make sure it was right. I checked in with some people on social media today. The book tells this story very differently. The book really kind of the driving force of the book kind of is this uh, agent in the nascent FBI. It isn't even called the FBI yet. It's just called the BI, basically. Uh, a guy named Tom White, uh, who who comes into this area uh, aware of these mysterious deaths and, and, and tries to do something about them. Um, that is not the choice that Scorsese made. Uh, in fact, DiCaprio, I believe, was initially recruited to play Tom White uh, and, and wanted instead to play Ernest Burkhardt. And, and meanwhile, the, the just the, the balancing act, the weights of, of the movie was were tilted much more towards this story uh, of the white men who married Osage women uh, and the just the incredible violation of, of intimacy, I think, is kind of uh, the meat of this movie in a lot of ways. But, James, I'm just wondering sort of how you see that, that change, that set of decisions and what you see as the ultimate sort of yeah, narrative weight that, that pushes this movie forward. Well, I, I think that really... Um the book is incredibly detailed, almost like a forensic documentary in a way, in, in following all the various threads. I think, in a way, it's unfair to look at this film as somehow you know capable of doing something like that. I think Mark, Martin Scorsese is a great filmmaker, and he's fascinated with figures of crime, and, and he's very good at telling a story that involves people behaving badly essentially and 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 causing terrible i mean really really vicious criminals is the only way to describe them and it makes for an entertaining story but i think that because we don't often see anything that really goes to the heart of what happened with um native americans uh, generally but the story of the osage is an incredibly vivid one and I feel a sort of disappointment that that wasn't really the focus of the story. 
And so I, I, that's where my disappointment comes. But I can't deny that it's an exciting film. It's well-made, well-edited. Stathelma Schoenmaker has lost none of her touch in, in editing. And I really didn't suffer from the length of the film. It kept my attention the whole time. So there's a lot of positives there. But it's like a sort of, in a way, a kind of escapist cinema that doesn't really address something that I, I guess I sort of hoped it would. Yeah, see, I think you're setting the bar pretty high here in saying that. First of all, I should declare I am prepared in this conversation to be kind of the skunk at the garden party, but I don't think it's I don't I don't think I need to do that yet. But um, you know, I I I would say that Scorsese could have made it much more escapist, like the story of Tom White showing up and cleaning cleaning up Dodge, so to speak, uh, is would be the kind of escapist thriller kind of story he has told. Instead, this rather lugubrious story of personal intimacy and violations of that in intimacy. I totally agree that it's still a, sto a story about white guys. It's a story about bad white guys. I mean, most of the camera time, a lot of the camera time is, is on either De Niro or DiCaprio or both. So um, he hasn't maybe, to your point, succeeded in telling a real Native American story. But Irene, uh, can I call you Irene still? Is that okay? I don't know. I mean, I just I haven't talked to your, your people yet about how you want to be addressed now. But just say a little bit about how the movie played out for you. Yeah, I, I think I, 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 I disagree quite a bit with the idea that it doesn't really, well, I mean, James, you said it doesn't really address what it should. I mean, I feel like it, and I, uh, I, I didn't see it as escape as it, escapist at all um because i thought yes it did focus on the white guys but it was it meant to be focusing on the white guys and sort of digging into the elements of corruption you know and how and how it works you know along with seduction and um you know i, I mean i i just kept thinking about virginia wolf's essay that she wrote when she was being she was in london in the 40s being bombed by, uh, you know, listening to the air raid. It's called, it's called Thoughts on Peace in an Air Raid. And she talks about the subconscious Hitlerism in the minds of men. And I felt as I was watching the movie that that's what this really was exploring, even, even when, and I, and I think it's a really important issue right now in the world, uh, because even when, you know, some people sort of define themselves as good or wanted to find themselves as good or diff even different or you know okay or doing things they're supposed to be doing there's there's this corruption and it's so toxic that it, and i think it's we can't have enough movies that explore that and and expose it because at least that's what i left with <laughs> that that feeling of of you, you know the vileness of it that that we need to look at that that was brilliantly put and it's no wonder people are calling you the new Foucault but um I know and I I mean I mean seriously that was brilliantly put and I let me just come back to you for a second and then we'll we'll, we'll keep going one thought that I had and I am a little bit of a skunk at the garden party here but I started thinking this morning about Marty <laughs> and how I think that what you just said is very true. I think if you want to understand the human psyche, Marty is maybe not the best place to go. I mean, I don't know why De Niro's character is so evil. I don't know why DiCaprio's character becomes so evil. 
I don't even quite understand why these kind of mostly attractive and high-functioning Osage and very rich or potentially rich Osage women marry these kind of annoying loser guys. Um, and and I don't know too much about the why Jordan, what's his name, and Wolf of Wall Street becomes what he becomes. Or I mean, I could point to a lot of Scorsese movies and say it's really about what people do and what happens. Things happen and people turn bad. People make dumb choices. Um, people are just the way they are. Uh, and, and Irene, I just have like, to have you respond to that. I mean, I guess you're saying you're kind of saying, yeah, that's the way people are. They get corrupted. Well, uh, and but it also there's so many other people who aren't necessarily like that, but they get swept up in it. They get swept up in it and they don't have the strength to be able to get themselves out of it. So it's just like, all right, I guess I'm going to go along with this, you know. And, and that's even more um, painful to watch. You know, someone that you sort of don't think is evil at all, who, who just can't help kind of just go with the program of the people that are around him. Yeah. No, I, I think that's well put. So before we go to Jim, uh, one of the things I do want to say that is that Jesse Plemons, I knew that I was in a bleak landscape when I realized that Jesse Plemons is going to play the guy who shows up to try to impose order and justice. I feel like when, when Jesse Plemons comes riding to the rescue over the ridge with his white hat on, we've been through something very, very bleak if he's the solution. But anyway, we're going to play B3Cat. Jesse Plemons plays Tom White, this uh, FBI agent. Uh, Leo DiCaprio, once again, is Ernest Burkhart, uh, a man who marries an Osage woman named Molly. Uh, this is B3Cap. Oh, I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. Huh. Let's see. Let's see what about them? Let's see who's doing it. Hmm. You a detective? You a Pinkerton? What are you? No, sir. I was a Texas Ranger. I'm now at the federal government. It's called the Bureau of Investigation. Um, I tell you what, if you if you got questions, if you got questions, uh, I'll go talk to the sheriff. He can probably tell you what you need to know. Oh, yes, sir, I have. I, I, I talked to him. But I'm here to speak with Molly Burkhardt, whose who's sisters and mother is dead. Yeah. Molly? Yeah, no, she's, she's, my, she's my wife. <laughs> So, Jim, one thing we do need to say is some people are doing some pretty amazing acting in this movie. Lily Gladstone is getting a lot of buzz, although as Molly Burkhart, she's semi-comatose a lot of the movie. But the, the times when she's kind of upright and, and able to do things in a very, with a very quiet strength, uh, she's great. Uh, DiCaprio is, is pretty terrific. You just heard a little of him here. De Niro, you know, this is really one of his great performances, I think. This is really, uh, I don't like this movie very much, but I mean, De Niro is really kind of amazing and it isn't really any kind of repeat uh, of Casino or The Irishman or anything else that I can think of that he's ever done. But Jim, just talk about, actually respond to anything that's been said so far in any way that you choose. I I think Eileen, uh, I'm going to go with, a uh, newly published author, Irene, in this, and that that uh, Yay. I, I'm I'm Team Irene. Uh, I think it's really um, it's not an enjoyable movie, but it feels like an essential movie. I don't know if I, I'm trying to decide: do I love it and not like it, or do I like it and not love it? But I don't think you could do both because it's so disturbing. Um, I didn't. I wasn't 
I was dreading the length of the movie. I didn't even think about it. It, it never occurred to me like, oh, this is so long. Uh, whereas with The Irishman, I had to take that in bits and pieces. Um, I, I really think it's a, a well-made uh, movie with wonderful acting. I'm not a, I'm usually neutral with Leo and he, he really is great in this. And Molly is, wow. She says so much without saying a word. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and she holds your gaze, um, with her silence. She's really amazing. Um, and yeah, uh, Robert De Niro is, is transcends the Robert De Niro. Um, and, and you know, we haven't talked about this, but I would like to for a second, at first, the soundtrack seemed slightly um, on the nose, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Robbie Robertson. And it's his last, it's the last thing he did. I think he died a month ago. Uh, and and then I realized, boy, it's, it's really perfect. It really sort of carries us through this. And I think it the soundtrack is in part responsible for getting us through the three and a half hours for, for shortening the movie a little bit. Uh, I, I think that might especially be the case for you. I mean, you're so attuned to music. You're also probably very pleased that musicians like Jason Isbell and Jack White uh, have parts yeah. of this. I mean, Marty's right. got to be eyeing you for something. I mean, you know. I'm not sure what it would be. I think it's the uh, aging Robin Hood. He's going to make Robin Hood uh, the Or baby. Robert De Niro's father. <laughs> All right. So, so James, I don't know. You can kind of t- I, We need to talk about the length of the movie, but maybe we have time for one more purely aesthetic round or, or at least set of observations from you. And once again, I'll just take this anywhere you want to take it, James. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I find I can't disagree with the comments about the film itself, the structure of the film itself. I mean, it's a it's a very well-made film. It's not a great film, but it's very well-made, well-acted. And I think that it does what exactly what Martin Scorsese wanted to do. And I think it's an audience pleaser in that sense. Um, and I, a, a curious thing, I mean, I've seen a couple of other films recently that I, uh, I sort of thought about, um, and actually, uh, one long film that came up because of its very carefully constructed intermission was Lawrence of Arabia, which is a very thrilling film, a great uh, piece of cinema. Um, yet, uh, after I saw the film, I began reading more about Lawrence and, and his what he did and all of the things that historically happened. And I realized how that film really didn't address those things, those big issues. And I suppose that is, I, that to me is a central conundrum about, about cinema as entertainment. I mean, the book uh, that, that uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is based on is kind of a documentary in itself. And it's something that teaches you a lot about the background, um, much as other, as other books about horrible events or about exploitation or about rape and plunder, all of those things, those, it, 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 it really helps to know the details. My sort of query still is that I can watch this film and sort of try to turn off that interest really, but I think that it doesn't really delve into things that, that the world needs to know about history um, and and doesn't. And so the film sort of has the impression in the marketplace that here it is uh, telling the story of what happened in Oklahoma to the Osage people. 
but it doesn't really tell about it. It's about money, about exploitation, and white people who used the government, essentially, to get what they wanted. I mean, this is an essential thing about these characters. They didn't just decide to do this stuff. They were aided and abetted by the government and laws that were passed that allowed them to do it. And I think that that is something crucial to remember about exploitation generally and and acts of conquest, all of that is because it's aided by people with money and governments. And uh, of course, we're now stuck with a situation where that's the same thing. Uh, but that's my that's my unease about the film, I would say. Can, yeah, yes. Go, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Can I say something? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, because I think that the story of love and morality, I mean, I, I feel like it, it does address that in the sense of you know, I love the scenes between um, Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio and the scenes where she said, you know, you talk too much, you know, just be quiet. And then they are quiet for a minute. And there's there's a there's there's a real intimacy that happens there that in another context might have really been love in, in the deepest sense that we would want it. But 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 they were swept up by all the forces that James is talking about. And and so to me, that was what the message the movie was trying to to express, you know, like that they didn't, you know, did he have did he really have a choice? Did he have a moral choice? Yes, um, in theory, at least. But I don't know whether he actually did, because those forces were so strong. The influences on him of others were so strong. And and that 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 touched me as a viewer of the movie in a way that I thought was you know, beyond what you're calling, you know, just entertainment. There's a remarkable I, silent scene, almost silent scene at the end. We can't really yes. say what it is, but it's a back yeah. and forth between Leo's character uh, and Lily Gladstone's character. Unfortunately for me, seeing it in a multiplex, there was like a Trolls movie next door or something was going boom, 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 boom. Oh, <laughs> no. this, this that was movie. the soundtrack. Yeah. That was the actual Robbie soundtrack. Robertson did that. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. the irony here is we're running out of time and we haven't talked about time yet. Uh, and so we need to. So, uh, Jim, this is three hours, three and a half hours long. Um, you know, and to James's point about Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia has kind of an epic scale to it and, and certainly lots of sunlight. Uh, and I mean, 1900, which De Niro is also in, is five hours long. It's been cut a whole bunch of different ways. It's like a grilled cheese sandwich at this point, but also kind of epic scale and Quite a bit of sun-drenched Italian landscapes. Um, this is three and a half hours long. It's very intimate. It's kind of shadowy and lugubrious, uh, Jim. And and to me, anyway, I wasn't really getting a whole lot of rewards. There isn't a lot of fun stuff. That well, it's movie. not a fun movie, yeah, right? And right. and to James's point, I would say, you know, the movie that he wanted to see might might actually be a documentary. And it's maybe what De Niro has done is sort of uh, a plant piqued our curiosity about these things in a in an entertaining way. Although it's it, it's depression as entertainment and disappointment and stuff. And to Irene's point, I do think they built a couple of moral trap doors for Leo's character in that they kind of made him be a little thick skulled. And so maybe he didn't have the uh, the intellectual ability 
to avoid some of the conundrums he found himself in. Jimmy, I'm not sure, Jimmy I, just wants enough money to get his teeth fixed. Uh, I, I right, feel like right. that's the and unspoken that, motivation. Get that downturn hangdog look <laughs> right. off his face. I hear they got these things called whiteners now. I need to get enough and money my, so I can get me some, where's, of them, some of them whiteners. Some of that Botox. <laughs> yeah. So, so J- James, I, I feel just talking about the length and because of your uh, incredible uh, and wonderful story career showing movies, exhibiting movies, I, 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 I hesitate to say this, but I feel like Marty, in deciding to follow his muse and make this three-and-a-half-hour movie, which is going to have trouble making its money back, it's also going to have trouble attracting people to movie theaters. I, 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 and I, people are daunted and put off by a three-and-a-half-hour movie. Also, once they hear that it's a little on the depressing side, or maybe a lot on the depressing side, they're even more put off. And I just wonder about that. I know we can have conversations about maybe there should be intermissions, which obviously a lot of exhibitors, not you, but a lot of exhibitors would really love intermissions for a whole bunch of different reasons. But but what about that? What about the, just the, re, the reality of this industry, including the people who love movies and, and put them up on screens? There's not... There aren't too many prizes in the in the uh, Cracker Jack box here if it's this long, James. Yeah, well, I think that this is an issue, and it's an issue that's affected by a lot of things, not least by streaming and the fact that in streaming situations, people send, tend to watch movies episodically, meaning that they don't watch the whole thing all at once, which is a serious problem for the artist making the film. Um that there are distractions and it becomes something consumed rather than being something that you get drawn into as if by a good story. Um, And it's curious to me that like with a book, you can pick it up and put it down and you can draw yourself back in the story. But personally, I find, um, you know, interrupting a film can be problematic. And there's also the, the issue that if you're really... I I think you have to think about the audience in terms of how they're going to absorb what you're doing. And many, many directors, I'm not particularly picking on on Martin Scorsese, but many directors fall in love with what they filmed and they want to fit it all in. And um, this was something that Alfred Hitchcock several times addressed by saying (laughs) that's why he started with storyboards and he only ever filmed about 10% more footage than he actually used. Um, In in the case of most filmmakers now, because of the cheapness of digital recording, they record vast numbers of takes and scenes that it, it creates a pressure to make the film longer And I do think that a shorter film that is focused and really tells the story crisply and skillfully, I think that you're more likely to have a success with the audience. People like me who live their life in in the dark in movie theaters, you know, a long film is not necessarily daunting. And I have to say this film, I didn't really think about the length of the film. But um, I think for the average audience now, the pressure is even greater because they have expectations like, you know, they want to check their email. They want to uh, they they want to go to the bathroom, quite understandably. But it makes it difficult then to tell a story in a coherent fashion. And that's part of the discussion about having intermissions, of course. All right. We have to break here. And I'm sorry to do that because I know that actually Irene has something very interesting to say about intermissions. Uh, But we may have to save it for another day or something. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back because we have to make some recommendations or endorsements. 
Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. All right, so, so today's show, the technical producer is Kat Pastor, uh, the producer of this episode, as usually is the case with the nose, although I think not next week. We'll have a surprise guest producer, but Jonathan McPants is producing today. Now, time to make some recommendations, uh, and since uh, she's the superstar of the moment, soon to be played <coughs> by Lady Gaga, uh, we'll talk to Irene Poulos. What are you going to recommend to us? Okay, well, I, I, I love getting dressed up and going out, and I'll, so I'll recommend that. But the reason that I want, one thing I was going to say about intermissions is it's an opportunity to people watch and get dressed up and see and be seen. And if you're interested in that, um, what better place to do that than the theater? And I went to the Pride and Prejudice at the Hartford stage, which actually does have an intermission. Um, and it was, I found it to be delightful. It really was entertainment and it was a quirky take on, on the novel Pride and Prejudice. And it's still there until November 5th. So I recommend just go to a play, go see, go see a silly, quirky Pride and Prejudice. Um, another guilty pleasure or, that I, that I've discovered that I'm way late to the party about is the show, The Americans, which I had never seen. And I sort of rebelled against because I thought it was anti-communist propaganda, which it kind of is, but it's so good. And so I'm, we, I'm in the middle, uh, with my partner of binging it and it's, and we're really enjoying it. So if you haven't seen The Americans, it's something to watch. Actually, at the MLA Symposium, I'm giving a paper titled Why Irene Papoulis Should Watch Friday Night Lights. Uh, you would understand Jesse Plemons so much better, by the way, if you did watch that. Uh, by the way, best intermission ever is the intermission in the producers where all the people come to the, into the bar where Zero Marcel and Gene Wilder are sitting <laughs> and just completely terrify them with the, their enthusiasm. Uh, James Hanley, you have the floor. Um, well, first of all, actually, I would recommend uh, David Grant's book about the killers of the flower moon. Um, it is really, really worth reading to learn stuff. I, when I read that book, I just felt I knew so little and it was so informative. And I think that's really good. I also happened to rewatch Terrence Malick's film, The New World, which I would recommend also as a thing to watch. Try and watch it all the way through um, without breaks. It's a really thought-provoking film, I think, and also something else that you can read bit by bit that is astounding in itself is the 1619 Project, the um, New York Times project uh, written by Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, and that is something. I, I just feel this is an opportunity to suddenly start thinking about what lies behind this. A good film, but um, that's, I, I feel it's being educated about what really lies behind it is really a gift. All right. And uh, Mr. Chapdelaine, uh, what are you going to recommend or endorse? Uh, speaking of what lies behind it, uh, there's a book called We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole. Oh, yeah. Personal History of uh, Modern Ireland yeah. that I'm, I'm really liking. And if you read it, you can tell people you read a book by a guy named Fintan, uh, which is important. I also would, uh, I'll tag along with Irene again. I like the Americans and I missed it. The first time around uh so so do that 
Um, and that's all I have. That is just fine. I want to just quickly say host prerogative here. One thing that I, I didn't maybe make clear uh, in the second segment there is, you know, a lot of movies that I see uh, or streaming things or whatever, my reaction is, I like this. I could pick it apart very easily, but I like this. Uh, and I feel it's sort of the opposite way about Killers of the Flower Moon. I didn't like it, although I could easily make a case for its greatness. And I do think the second time I watch it, ideally at Trinity Cine Studio, I will like it much better. I kind of already feel that. I, I think I was operating under some of the weight of it. I will, um, first of all, since since you guys talked about the Americans, I would just say, um, although it was a little controversial when we talked about it on the news, uh, but if you like Kerry Russell, and you know, there's no way to come out of the Americans without being crazy about Kerry Russell, I, I thought The Ambassador was a really good series uh, on Netflix. Uh, it's her and Rufus Sewell, and it's you know always kind of treading on the verge of being sort of a Cary Grant, uh, you know, Grant and Hepburn kind of knockabout rom-com, but it's also really quite serious as well. And, and I think they may pull off that distinction uh, pretty well. One thing that's on Netflix right now that I'm enjoying, just because it's, it's smart, it's real, really kind of an Emily St. John Mandel kind of thing. It's called Bodies. It takes place in four time periods that are kind of layered on top of one another, like Philo Doe. I don't think it has a lot of really famous people in it, either that or the people who are famous, but I just don't know them. But I'm almost all the way through it now, and my attention hasn't really wavered that much, and I'm trying to understand the mystery of it all. And so I do recommend that. But mainly, a lot of gratitude for having the nose back together with Jim Chapdelaine, James Hanley, Irene Papoulis. Get the book, The Essays Only You Can... Yeah, oh, yeah, The Essays Only You Can Write. That's what it's called? I think it's here wrong here. That's it. That's it. The Essays Only You Can Write, which is published this week. Autograph copies will be available. It's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this. about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah